welcome to the SLD podcast, where we talk about ELT, SLA, and other things that enthrall and infuriate us. For episode 8, we're going to hear the first of a two-part conversation all about coursebooks, responding to Jeff Jordan's appeal that we need to talk about coursebooks. Joining me for that will be Jeff Jordan himself, Matthew Elman, and Nicholas White, and I'm your host, Neil McMillan. Why should we talk about course books? The debate over whether or not to use them or how best to use them is often thrashed out on social media but never seems to get too far. Criticising course books can be a tricky job, not least because they are not monolithic and they vary according to the context in which they are to be sold. However, one of the key counter-arguments is that they remain broadly similar in the approach they take to language teaching and learning. But also criticising them is tricky because their defenders are often quick to acknowledge the defects of the material. They toe a pragmatic line and insist on the fundamental role of the teacher in adapting course books to students' needs. And as teachers are in many places obliged to use course books, attacking them can easily look like attacking teachers. At the same time, the role of teacher agency in the classroom and how far course books might facilitate or inhibit that agency is still worth discussing. The mere fact that our conversations about language teaching so often come back to which course book is being used, how it's being used, or if there's no course book what kind of syllabus and materials are being put in its place, shows its central role in the ELT industry. For that reason alone, it's surely worth talking about coursebooks a little bit more. In this episode, we'll discuss the kind of language to be found in coursebooks and whether or not it adequately represents authentic usage. We'll also talk about the validity of criticisms based on methodology alone, given the variety of purposes that coursebooks might have. We'll take a look at the mechanics of coursebook production and how teachers are involved in their design, and we'll ask how they can be improved. All references and further comments can be found in the show notes as usual. We hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, well, welcome to the SLB podcast. We're delighted to have on this episode not only uh, Jeff Jordan, who's a regular contributor, uh, but also we have Nicholas White. Now, Nick, we know you from a blog that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Uh, Salon de Refuse. Okay, and uh, this blog piqued my interest, not just because it has a blog post which kind of responds to some of Jeff's criticisms about course books, but it mm-hmm. has a number of other different interesting bits and bobs on it. And I think you respond quite a lot to what other people have written um, on ELT, on different posts, etc. And so it's kind of responsive to what's going on and the kind of conversations that are happening but maybe, Nick, can you just introduce yourself to us a little bit? You're an academic, is that right, at the University of Portsmouth? Um, no, not exactly. My actual t- job title is Teaching Fellow in ESOL. Although, um, in spite of the job title, what I actually mainly do is teach um, verbal communication for academic purposes. Uh, so, in other words, English for academic purposes and business communication primarily. And I also do some work on uh, assisting students with independent research projects. And I occasionally work with Trinity TESOL trainees who we have within the university. So second year applied language students are able to do a part-time Trinity TESOL course all the way through the year, for example. And I, I, 
I've had some involvement in that. Um, so, but I'm not an academic in the sense of doing a researcher, uh, although I am actually doing a part-time PhD at the minute. What's the subject of your PhD? My PhD is through um, the University of Warwick, where I think you might know Richard Smith is there. He's my um, supervisor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You may have heard of him because he's the one who's, well, for many reasons, but for one of the reasons that he set up the ELT archive in Warwick, which is a big archive of, of kind of ELT textbooks going over like kind of the last hundred years. Um, so anyway, so my PhD is History of Language Learning and Teaching. And essentially, I'm trying to look at how the biographies of language teachers uh, may have had an influence on the kind of methods uh, that happen in the classroom and the kind of developments that have in the classroom. Because uh, I, I feel it's been overlooked generally, that, that area. And I believe you interviewed a certain Jeff Jordan for that research. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah actually, yeah, Jeff, Jeff was my first inter- very first interview in uh, December, late December 2018. And, uh, and that was the first time. In fact, actually, quite a lot of what Jeff said in that interview prompted a kind of change in direction um, from an earlier direction to the current direction, especially his comments that I know that you've talked to him about in a previous podcast on uh, the Angry Brigade and mm. all the kind of things, you know, getting in trouble at uh, the London School of Economics, sort of doing philosophy of science or almost going to do philosophy of science with Popper, Karl Popper, I mean, and, and so on. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was, um, yeah, it was a very interesting um, uh, interview. And maybe you could tell us a bit more about your work within ELT publishing. Could you maybe say something about that and maybe talk about the course books you've been involved with? Oh, yeah, absolutely. After I, f- I, I did a master's degree in linguistics in, uh, in Nottingham, which finished in 2006. Uh, and before that, I'd been teaching for about eight years in different countries. And then I went to work for Cambridge University Press as a development editor for about five years. I worked on the exams list and then on the English specific purposes list, uh, which I don't think exists anymore, unfortunately. But anyway, then I did five years freelance where I was teaching and also working as an editor and a writer. And when I was writing then, I did a lot of contributing kind of uh, writing short tests or vocabulary exercises. Um, But I also worked on um, Unlock uh, Level 1, Listening and Speaking, which or the first edition of that, which is a book by Cambridge. And then I also co-wrote a workbook for New Language Leader Upper Intermediate for Pearson. Okay, and we've also got with us today Matthew Elman. Matt is somebody that we know from, from Twitter. We've had some interesting conversations with Matt over the years. Matt, can you just introduce yourself? Am I right in saying you're not a course book writer but work for a publisher, or have you been involved in course book writing as well? No, that's right, Neil. So I'm, uh, I'm a teacher trainer and training manager, um, and I work for Cambridge University Press. So I, I, I guess most people don't realise that Cambridge University Press provides teacher training. Some of it's related to course books, uh, so it's training for customers um, to support their use of a particular course book, but probably about 50-60% now is kind of course book independent, um, and we work with large institutions or ministries of education to, to train teachers up. And when you say train teachers up, you are, are you primarily training teachers up to use the course books that are published by CUP, or is it more general than that? It's more general than that. So in many cases, they're, they're using a book um, produced by another publisher. Um, 
Ah. So, for example, we've got a program going on right now in Japan uh, with the Japanese Ministry of Education. Um, all the teachers involved in that program use course books published locally. But they hire you guys as a, obviously an institution with, with a track record and training up teachers. Yes. Okay. And where are you based, Matt? I'm based just outside Cambridge. Okay. So you're in, you're in England as well? In the UK. Yeah. Okay. And, well, I don't know, Jeff, you don't need an introduction on this podcast. No, no. But just to say that sometimes it feels like you're the only course book critic out there, which is, of course, not true. But I, don't, I just sometimes get the feeling that you're the one that gets attacked the most. <laughs> um, so if we think about Scott Thornbury is not a big uh, fan of course books. We've got other people like um, Brian Tomlinson. Brian Tomlinson, yes. Uh, we've got John Gray and other people who have uh, criticised course books. From the, why, why do you get it in the neck, do you think, Jeff? Is it just because I you're more outspoken? It's certainly when I started the AppLink blog, I was very aggressive and I actually rather sort of broke the norm of ELT polite interchange and was fairly outspoken in my criticisms of people like Harmer and uh, others. Uh, so I think I brought it on myself in a way, you know, I was pretty forthright. Scott's always, Scott Thornbury's always much more measured and um, a bit like the Vicar of Bray, in my opinion, but we've, we've had that conversation with him. But I think he, that's the thing, my, he avoids uh, the sort of <laughs> odium I get because um, he's much more careful in the way he expresses himself. And uh, of course, he's also involved in teacher training and CELTA and stuff that I'm not. And uh, we should probably also clarify that um, those people on this podcast who do work for publishers aren't necessarily here to represent the views of those publishers, right? Um, I can just say that Matthew's nodding. Yes, very much. <laughs> um, and neither, in fact, do the views necessarily represent the members of SLB because the number of us have got different positions on course books. Some of us use them, some of us help write them, some of us are a bit more anti course book. Um, I'm acting as the host here in this podcast although we do have two like we're going to hear from two kind of pro course book positions versus one from Jeff so maybe I won't be a completely unbiased um, host in that I might be backing Jeff's position a bit more but yeah that's my position personally to be more critical of course books but that doesn't necessarily represent the members of our cooperative. Let's just start then with a reference to this post that um, Nick you wrote on your blog which was accepting the course book challenge that, that Jeff had set. Um, we're going back a few years now. And I think, Jeff, you published a presentation with some challenges about course books, and, and Nick had written a post to respond to that. I think, Nick, maybe you could summarize it, I think. Yeah, so uh, basically the, the uh, blog post that I wrote was in response to uh, a talk that Jeff had given in, I think, 2015 at uh, the ELT Innovate Conference. So I heard that um, presentation and, uh, and I did enjoy it. I mean, it was given with the typical kind of verb that, you know, Jeff kind of delivers his uh, kind of presentations. But during it, there were a couple of things that I heard that I just, just instinctively kind of reacted to because having worked in EFL myself and also, uh, oh, sorry, as in specifically within publishing and still having quite a lot of friends who work in, for example, at Cambridge and uh, Pearson, it felt a little bit unfair, uh, you know, to, to paint them quite in this way. I think, I think actually, um, 
Mike Long does the same thing in his, his 2015 book on task-based learning. Like there's even a passage in it when he refers to uh, ELT authors as sit, sitting back and sipping their martinis on a, you know, on a, on a desert <laughs> island somewhere. I mean, that is, that's almost a direct quote from, I can't remember the page, but that, that is definitely in there somewhere. But anyway, so um, Jeff had these, basically these, these three kind of objections, which I'll just kind of read out now, which um, declarative knowledge is converted to procedural knowledge by the presentation and practice of discrete items of grammar. So essentially, he's just talking about the kind of syllabus where in week one or unit one, they do present simple in unit two, they do past simple in unit three. And, and so declarative knowledge basically means knowledge about the language. So for example, a student knowing the rule that we use the present perfect when blah, 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 blah. Okay, whereas procedural knowledge meaning actually sort of knowledge of the language as in the ability to use it essentially. So that was the first point. Uh, his second point was that he said that SLA or second language acquisition, as you know, is a process of learning these discrete items one by one in an accumulative way. Okay, and then the third point was that learners learn what they're taught when they're taught it. Okay. The actual blog post, though, I, I didn't actually get around to addressing directly those three points um, because in, as a preliminary, Jeff had made a couple of points. And the first point that he'd made was that course book English is a very weird kind of English. And he went on to say it's not representative of the way people communicate in English. And then he also said that in course books, everybody speaks in complete, well-formed sentences. Nobody swears. Nobody shouts, nobody mumbles, stutters, and nobody code switches. Okay, that was his first kind of point that I, that I was kind of reacting against. And then um, the other one that he made in his preliminary before he got onto those three issues I just described is um, he talked about this absurd domination of materials produced in England where everybody walks around in silly English clothes and jumps on double-decker buses and so on. So the main thrust of the, the kind of uh, the blog post that I wrote addressed those two points, um, particularly the one about not representative of the way English speakers speak, because I, I think that may have been true even up to maybe the mid-90s or, or the, the late-90s, but I think certainly in the 2000s, uh, there have been quite a wave of course books that have tried very conscientiously to follow patterns of actual speech. Because remember, the people who write a lot of these course books. You know, they are people like Lindsay Clanfield, Adrian Doff uh, is another one, you know, and these are people who are teachers, teacher trainers, you know, Ben Goldstein, Kerry, um, sorry, Kerry, who lives in Toledo, whose surname I've, I wanted to call her Kerry Matthews, but I think that's a singer. Sorry, that, um, Kerry Jones, sorry. That Kerry was Jones, yeah. So, you know, so the, these are people who, you know, they, they've got a, a, a wide depth of knowledge of applied linguistics. They're very serious about kind of their teacher and their teacher training. And so um, I, I, I just kind of basically, I took the books off my bookshelf and I went through kind of examples where uh, you, you know, you can quite clearly see that they, that what Jeff kind of accused them of saying that uh, it's a very weird kind of English that is not representative the way people communicate and that everybody speaks in well-formed sentences is just I mean, it was just, it was just, I mean, it's, it's not true. And it's uh, even at elementary level. So you might expect it at higher levels, like, you know, upper intermediate and so on. But even at elementary, I've got um, a brief example from uh, Face to Face, uh, which is Redstone and Cunningham. 
And so this is a, a conversation between uh, two, two people. So uh, one of them goes, what about Nick? He's a doctor. Oh, right. How many children have they got? And then the answer is two, a boy and a girl. So even at elementary level, it's clear that that language has been graded by the, a combination of the authors and or editors. But to say that that is, they all speak in complete well-formed sentences, I think it's clearly, I mean, it's just clearly not, not the case, basically. And even, even in, uh, there were other examples like, um, uh, that I just wanted to pick on briefly, speaking about Lindsay Clanfield, um, uh, his course book, Global, or it wasn't just him, but he was one of the writers on that. Um, but the course book Global, uh, they even included um, sort of model sentences of non-native speaker speech. Uh, so you've got an interview with somebody called Elodie from Switzerland, who says, she's talking about what a good friend means to her. And she says, um, if you can have fun with this person, so I think it will be a friend. You know, which is obviously slightly, you know, you could, uh, that's not, that's non-standard English, let's say, uh, or it could be described as non-standard English. And yet that was included in a commercially published course book um, in around, when was that one? 2011. So, I mean, that, that kind of um, input had been around for a few years. So most of that blog post was taking up trying to demonstrate that actually really, um, there are plenty of course books out there that do have what I would argue are language that is representative of, of, of not a weird kind of communication as Jeff had suggested, but, um, you know, but quite, quite, you know, quite normal features of spontaneous spoken communication. Jeff, do you want to come back on that? Because I, I don't think you've got much to object to this. Uh, well, I think the, the stuff Nick dealt with, was more my uh, overgeneralization about uh, the language used in course books and my saying that this was um, what uh, Long refers to as impoverished input and that it was very bland, uh, very one-dimensional, sort of um, European, male, uh, middle-class, careful, no parsnips, and I, I made uh, a few rash generalizations such as everybody speaks in complete sentences and things like that, um, which Nick was, in my opinion, perfectly right to pick me up on. So to the extent that uh, the, the, the criticism was of too broad, too sweeping generalizations about the language typically used um, in the texts, I, uh, I accept that criticism completely. That it was a, a very rough thumbnail sketch, not a carefully drafted criticism. And, but um, as I say, to me, the main points were those three uh, false assumptions that course books make about the way we learn um, a second language, and um, um, those three points and my reasons for them are, my, uh, are the basis for my criticism uh, of course books in terms of the, the syllabus that they implement. Um, course books, general English course books, uh, my argument goes, um, implement a product or um, synthetic syllabus as long 
and Crooks called it, where teaching and learning consists of being presented with a linear line of items of uh, the language which are chopped up into bits um, and you're presented with these bits one by one uh, and under the assumption that you'll learn them and accumulate them and synthesize them together. So that, that sort of um, framework, that syllabus that uh, course books implement is actually the focus of my criticism. And to the extent that I generalize too much about the language used in them, I accept that there were overgeneralizations, although I don't think I was a million miles away. And I think Brian Tomlinson, for example, he's done three different uh, criticisms now of, of reviews of course books, comes to, to a very critical and damning conclusion about the kind of the content and language used in most of the texts used in the most popular general English course books. Okay, so can we then turn to what Nick might have gone on to write? Because I got the impression, Nick, that you um, were planning a follow-up post where you perhaps took on these other... Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think just to be clear, I mean, as, as I think um, I do recognise that Jeff was speaking to an audience and that, you know, there's, there's an entertainment factor in that. Um, but to get to the substantive points that weren't covered in the blog post, which is the ones about declarative knowledge and so on, um, I think my issue in a way is not so much that I disagree with it as it's presented, um, but I think, I, I think it, personally, I just think it suffers a little bit from what happens with a lot of other kind of SLA research or instructed SLA research as it applies to language teaching, in that I think it, it criticises the course book from only one dimension, and the dimension is, is literally about the language and the language learning. And in some ways, that, that seems obvious. Like, why wouldn't you criticise a book for language learners from the way it's going to present language learning? But I think my point is, is that you've got so many other interests invested in there, and you've got so many other um, dimensions to what happens in a classroom and the kind of institutions that they go into. So, you know, on, on a on a base level, institutions quite often do need to have uh, an organized structure to their course. And I think, uh, and more importantly, as a community of learners, as kind of students coming together, there is a very wide range of motivations. And I think in some ways, um, at, and I think teachers appreciate this, but you know that like the students in your class may have, believe it or not, other priorities than the learning of language. That's not their only reason for being there and I think you know that so for example you can think about the dynamics that if you if you walk into a classroom for the first time with learners that are there also for the first time that have never met each other for, before there is an awful lot going on in that classroom like for example you may have one guy kind of sizing up like oh is she attractive is she not attractive is she you know and I know that sounds a bit sexist but I'm saying I would say especially with young people that does kind of happen um, I think there's another thing as well where people who, you know, especially if they've been learning English since they were in nursery school, they may feel a little bit awkward in some ways about still being in an English class. It might make them feel a little bit brittle, a little bit, um, you know, kind of on edge. So they might also be trying to size each other up for who's got the best, kind of, or who's got the highest proficiency of language. And there are all, there are all kinds of things going on other than that kind of, that interest in, in, in just 
the learning of the language, which, which SLA draws on, I think. So I, I think, yes, it might not be the best for, or it might not be ideal, or it, you know, even it could be argued that it's counterproductive to organise the grammar syllabus following that synthetic format. But at the same time, I think it is useful to have a book organised in that way for other purposes that may not be immediately obvious just if you're flicking through a textbook and you are only thinking of it in terms of method and the most efficient form of language learning. Matt, do you want to come in on that? Because, you know, you're someone who works yes. with a publisher. Is that, do you, would you agree with that? I definitely agree with what Nick's just said. And it's actually, it kind of reminds you of some of the stuff that's come up from this, this project that I mentioned in Japan. Because I also agree with some of the things that Jeff has said about course books, about the way they encourage teachers to talk about language um, and present a very unnatural picture of language. And if you look at some of the course books being used in Japan, and these, these are kind of uh, locally published, I, I think you'd have a heart attack, Jeff. <laughs> All your detractors need to do is just send you a truckload of Japanese course books and um, they, could, uh, they could get rid of you in one fell swoop. <laughs> because it's, um, if, if you're to judge those books by the standards of SLA, then I think they fall well short of it. But as Nick says, there are other... Other things going on, I think, and um, I think this is true of all course books, actually. They're, they they obviously influence what goes on in the classroom, but they are also they also reflect the educational context that they're in. And these books in Japan uh, look the way they do to a large extent because of the Japanese university entrance exam, which is basically a, a huge exercise in translating very unnatural texts. Um, so it's an extremely high stakes exam. And for many, many of the students in school in Japan, um, they've got no interest, you know, potentially in, in going abroad, using English to travel. Uh, they've got no interest in using English to work. I think it's fair to say for many of them, their sole motivation for being in an English class and for studying English is to pass this exam, which they have to pass to get into university in Japan. So I, I definitely agree that, you know, with Nick's point that, uh, you know, bizarre as it might sound, learning the language is not always... You know, it's not always uh, the only thing that's going on when course books are written. Well, there's quite different points there, really, though. I mean, on the one hand, it doesn't matter if they are not based on SLA research because students are there just to get off with each other. Versus, It doesn't matter that they're <laughs> not based on SLA research because students just need to pass an exam which is not based on SLA research. You know, I think there was an interesting comment by Maria Michel or Michelle recently that she said uh, if you could go in and change the exam, the national exams, then this would have a profound effect, of course, on the on the kinds of classes that you know the washback of that would be profound. Uh, but I don't know, Jeff. Do you want to? I don't know if, if I'm really quite convinced by this that because students are doing other things in the classroom other than learning the language, then that means that the books shouldn't be based on some sound principles. I don't know if I'm kind of misrepresenting the. What do you think? Well, I, I don't think that um, anything that I've heard so far this afternoon changes my uh, argument that English language teaching currently in the world has as a kind of paradigm the implementation of a synthetic syllabus that cuts the language up into bits, treats the language as an object, and by its format and, and by following that course book through from page one to the end, um, what you do is that you spend most of your time talking about the language, treating the language as a 
object that is to be presented and practiced in the way it is, and that that is an inefficacious way of going about ELT. That's the argument. There are a million reasons to explain why that might be. For example, that in Japan, uh, cultural reasons, for example, uh, uh, we've heard this a million times, and you know, that they argue against the communicative language approach because of their cultural diffidence and so on. And it's absolute bollocks. Um, and in fact, there are over 50 studies of TBLT carried out in the Southeast Asia and in China, where given half the chance and given the right uh, framework and the right approach, um, they're all too prepared and all too happy to, to engage in communicative tasks rather than listen to a teacher spout a load of nonsense about the present perfect and then fill in sentences in the forlorn hope that that'll help them pass a ridiculous exam. So that's the problem, that the whole thing has to be seen. The ELT, the structure of ELT, has to be seen in the way it is. What informs it? What pushes it? What drives it? And what drives it are the pillars of examination, publishers, training, and the, the necessity of turning uh, a rather chaotic process of language learning into a commodity that can be sold for people using daft frameworks uh, as, as the A1 to, to B to C2, whatever it is, um, common European framework. So the whole thing is skewed. My argument is that's not an efficacious way. If you take uh, the research into SLA seriously, if you take a serious approach to what we know about the development of interlanguage and the way that people approach uh, language learning and how it works, which in, incidentally, uh, the difference between declarative and procedural knowledge is extremely important inside that framework. If you take it seriously, we have a picture of how people learn languages. And the best way to do it is to do it, not that he listen to somebody else talk about it. That's the extraordinary difference between learning a second language and learning something like geography, where declarative knowledge is obviously very important, because if you don't know that Paris is the capital of France and so on. So that's the point. We start with what do we know about language learning? We go from there to what is the best way to, to, to implement this in a syllabus? And is, the, the argument is that an analytic syllabus of TBLT and other uh, types is more efficacious. That's the whole point. More efficacious than using a, a course book to deliver a product-based syllabus. That's my argument. Of course, there are a million ways that teachers ameliorate the, 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 the deficiencies of course books. Of course they do. They do marvelous things. And of course, the washback effect of terrible exams is huge. And, and so on and so on. But uh, none of that actually gets to the grips with the three things that I did. It's based on three false assumptions about the way we know so far. We don't know everything. We haven't got a magic bullet. We don't know there are too many variables to know. And of course, uh, uh, specific context will determine the, the particular implementation of any syllabus. But we do know enough to know that a product syllabus used as the basis for a course 
where PPP or something like it uh, processes is present practice that, that is not an efficacious way of organizing ELT and there are much more uh, efficacious ways of doing it and they don't get airing because there's so much commercial clout behind the present way of doing things. It's a multi-billion dollar industry and it's very hard to crack. If I can just pick up on this, this idea, so the idea of the synthetic syllabus, Nick, you referred to, I think it's um, the reply to Jeff's article in ELTJ is uh, by Stacey Holiday Hughes. Jeff's point is that course books are based on a synthetic syllabus. Mm -hmm. Stacey Holiday Hughes argued that in fact, yes, okay, they're organized by grammar points in a certain sequence, but there's a mixture of synthetic and analytic elements in it that often units are often based on texts, etc. But you seem to be in your last answer suggesting that Jeff is kind of right, that they are kind of synthetic things. Just to clarify that then, your objection to Jeff's objection is kind of coming from the point of view that Jeff's only looking at methodology, perhaps, that it's just that the course book serves another purpose in the classroom. Maybe could you expand on that a little bit? So yeah, I would say it's kind of like essentially a methodological eye view, if you like. Uh, and I think, you know, if you look at, and I think that's been a problem in some research as well, you know, if you look at Diane Larson Freeman or Richardson Rogers, um, they present a kind of view of the development of method in English language teaching as a progress from, um, you know, first you have, uh, you know, kind of grammar translation, then it goes into audio lingualism, then it goes into the situational approach, then it goes into communicative language teaching via kind of current community language learning or uh, get no silent way you know all those kind of rather you know Lazanoff and suggested pedro all those kind of slightly wacky kind of um, things that quite often still reappear on uh, diploma courses as a kind of why don't you try this out on your lesson kind of thing and again i think if you if you just focus on those you miss out the other things that are happening in the classroom because i, th I think too too heavy a focus on the course book ignores or sci or completely erases the fact that the course book is only one part one element in the classroom and i wouldn't say it's even the most important element i mean it is you know i think in a lot of ways like the actual the physical classroom probably has far more impact on the kind of learning that takes place and the quality of learning takes place if you've got 25 students in a, a, you know in a dusty chalk ridden classroom that's quite airless with no air conditioning on a hot day and all the desks are nailed down, you know, so that students can't move around and it's very awkward. And so that probably has far more bigger impact on the quality of learning than, than whatever is in the course book. And another thing, sorry, just to mention, I, think I, I just generally dislike this view of the publishers determining the way the course book is produced and the way the course book is produced determining how teachers then teach. I think that's that very hierarchical, one directional, you know, from top down to bottom pressure, I think is just, I, I just don't think it's a realistic picture of what happens, especially because, and I think Matt can probably confirm this as well, um, publishers do spend a lot of money on things like focus groups, on surveys, they send out um, draft manuscripts uh, to teachers who are experienced teachers who then uh, comment on the directly onto the text saying I don't think this would work in my class or I, I like this activity and so there is quite a lot of process of selection that goes through 
um, these kind of course books. So to, to simply suggest that there hasn't been any feedback or that it doesn't take into account the needs of teachers, I think is, I, I, I do think that's a mistake, to be honest. Um, and, and then just one last point, sorry, just, um, sorry, and I'll, I'll pass it on because I've talked quite a bit now, but um, but just one last point. I think um, Jeff was characterising, uh, or he was giving the impression of this idea, and he's done this a few times in some of his blog posts as well, that, you know, kind of teachers come in and they say, okay, today we're going to do the present perfect and this is the present perfect. I I just don't see that. I see a lot of what, even, even you know, um, teachers straight off the kind of CELTA, not always, but even some teachers straight off the CELTA will have the idea that they should start with some kind of warmer and then if they are teaching PPP, they might well show a picture and they might get students to say, okay, what can you see in the picture to kind of build the scenario which the language is then fed, in, fed into. I mean, I'd, I would be astonished. I mean, that, I, I, I don't recognise a teacher walking in to a class going, hello, how are you? Did you have a nice weekend? Okay, so today this is the present perfect. Da, 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 da. Thanks for that. It clarifies what you said earlier, I think. I would just want to point out a couple of things. Something we've mentioned before on this podcast is we don't really know I think we, I think research is needed into how teachers use course books. Maybe you guys know of uh, research that's been done, but we do always have this argument that teachers are not bound to use the course book the way it's, it's set out. And I'm sure many teachers don't use the course book the way it's set out, but it would be really interesting to, to have more, you know, empirical data on how teachers do use course books. We do have a colleague uh, of ours in the in the SLB co-op, we did a master's thesis on the use of course books and teacher agency. That's uh, Tom Flaherty. Um, now, of course, it's a small, a small scale study, and I'm happy to share that with you. I'm sure Tom wouldn't mind. But uh, it's the idea that the course book as a package kind of mitigates against teacher agency or, or teachers um, being particularly creative with the course book, because as soon as you start fiddling with one part of it, it doesn't fit with the next section because everything all links up together and as we know, course books are not just a book anymore. They are all a kind of a set of resources that are all interlinked. But I don't know. If you know of research into this, that would be really interesting. But I think if we don't have that, we're just assuming that teachers may or may not follow the course book blindly. Maybe, Matt, you can come in on this as a teacher trainer. I mean, does it, does it depend on, on culture or which countries you're working in? But what's your experience of how teachers use course books? Um, I've, I'm not aware, sadly, of any um, research into it, but I agree it would be really interesting. Um, I think Nick's, what I think is Nick's general point, which is that there's a range of reasons the way why course books look as they do. I would certainly agree with, and that one of the one of the problems I think sometimes with this discussion is the we we say course books and we treat them all as a single entity, when of course there's there are huge differences, and I think the differences do tend to arise from the needs of the local context so that you know in Japan we've got these books that are very much focused on the university entrance exam and um, uh, I've got some books on my desk uh, in the office from Armenia that look very different again because of the Armenian context and there's a lot of focus on um, on the Latin alphabet versus the Armenian alphabet and the, the course books from the international publishers kind of follow the same pattern they're produced according to certain demands and as Nick said, most of the big publishers have what they call teacher panels or expert teacher panels, and they conduct focus groups with these with these panels. They get the teachers to feedback on books and on drafts. And uh, I mean, I think that's one reason potentially why a lot of the course books from 
major publishers look very similar. You know, if you pick up an adult general English course book from Oxford or Pearson or Macmillan on that flick test, they're pretty indistinguishable. You'd be hard pressed to say this book is an Oxford book or this book is a Pearson book. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I do think that the materials reflect the context just as much as they influence the context. And uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a one-way street. It's not the case that teachers pick up a book and they, they're obliged to use that book in a certain way. Okay, let me put this back to, to Jeff. Does it make a difference to your argument that course books may not be the kind of top-down packages, that are kind of uh, a cabal of... Uh, greedy publishers who think that the best way to make money is going to be doing courses like this, but in fact that they are based to some extent on feedback from teachers on, on what works for them. Does that make any difference to your argument at all? Well, unfortunately, it, it, as I say, it's part of a sort of um, circle. Uh, most teachers, um, and there is research on this, and incidentally there is some research on um, how teachers carry out uh, their teaching, um, from various books, including uh, books uh, from collections from various conference uh, um, summaries, and also um, John Fanslow and other people have, have collected uh, teacher diaries. So um, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that teachers as a whole, globally, take the view that uh, they should be teaching the subject and treating the, the, the L2 English, for example, as an object, and that their job is to present it and practice it and, and, and so on. So it's not surprising that if you ask them for their feedback, they'll tell you uh, what they expect is something like a course book already is. The course book has developed in the last uh, 50 years, not very much in, in its essential. It's still actually um, implementing what the situational approach to teaching English, which is if you say, John, well, you know the situational approach. So to say that course book uh, publishers and editors uh, get feedback from teachers, of course they do. But the trouble is, what kind of feedback do they get when the teachers are expecting course books in the first place? Uh, and the exams are similarly biased, and so is the Common English, uh, the, the, the European frame of reference, and so on. So it all goes around in a circle. And it's very difficult to get uh, alternative approaches across. There was a magic period in the 1980s when everything went up for grabs when CLT actually for a few years was um, implemented with tremendous gusto, enthusiasm and inventiveness until the course books closed it all down and went back to what is in fact a, a, a commodification of education. It's, e that's, it's simple, it's straightforward, we're on unit two, we've got 13 units to go and so on. Now, the other point is to say that teachers don't slavishly follow coursebooks, and of course they don't. And I repeat that they do extraordinary things in order to ameliorate the worst parts of coursebooks. Nevertheless, if everybody in the class has a coursebook, which is headway intermediate or whatever the hell it is, it is kind of unlikely that they wouldn't start with unit one. And it is kind of unlikely that they wouldn't work their way fairly systematically through the book reading the texts, reading the grammar things, doing the exercises, listening to the thing, doing the follow-up and doing more or less what the book says. 
And if they do that, if they do it for 70% of the time, then that course book is largely determining uh, the, 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 the content and the process of the course. Of course, in any local situation, it'll be one thing more than another. In Japan, perhaps they'll spend three quarters of an hour practicing on a, 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 a you know, somebody test item rather than even 10 minutes and so on. It's of course, what we're talking about is a general English, and, and of course, course books are not all the same. I'm referring, as I did in the article for ELTJ, the general English course books, not, not specialist ones, not ELT, not ESP, and so on. And in those cases, certainly the teacher has an input. Certainly every community of learners, um, as Nick called them, are, are, are different. Nevertheless, the normal expectation, the normal thing teachers do and students expect is that kind of chopping of the language up into bits, presenting it in texts and so on, and practicing it in a way that is utterly unlike uh, what happens in, in, in second language acquisition research. So the argument is it would be a lot better if it were organized differently. For example, in a TBLT, then where the focus is on the students using the language for relevant communicative purposes, rather than being told about the language by the teacher. The problem, of course, is the enormous weight of commercial interest against that, and the difficulty of um, organizing a good TBLT course uh, in terms of the resources that are necessary, in terms of the teacher training that's necessary, in terms of the different kind of exams that you'd have to put in place, and so on and so on. That's what stifles change. So I'm, I'm, that's my point. It's round in a circle that teachers give feedback to, to CUP or whoever, Pearson's, whoever it is, uh, is hardly, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Uh, what would surprise me very much indeed is to hear teachers making uh, radically different uh, suggestions about it. And that incidentally, again, is this appalling framework of A1 to D3. All of that is based on, none of that is empirically uh, based. It's all teacher uh, um, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 teachers were asked, where do you think this comes from A1 to C2? Nothing to do with deep uh, learners. Um, so the whole thing is what um, uh, uh, Glenn Fulcher, um, who we've had on, Neil, calls, it's a Frankenstein scale. It's absurd. And to say, oh, I'm on A2 and I hope, it, it, uh, sort of whatever it is, and I want to get to B2, this is nonsense. This is not the way people learn languages. Uh, and yet it's the framework and it's the kind of thing that teachers uh, basically support because they're given such horrendous uh, teacher training programs and they're inside a, a framework that they it's very hard to get out of. Let me just, I mean, obviously feel free to come back on any of these points that Jeff's made, but I would like to ask Nick and Matt, we're unlikely to get much further in this conversation today. We'll see if you guys would agree to come back and record a bit more another time. But on this topic of teacher feedback to publishers going into course book design, you are both teachers as well as uh, trainers and writers, etc. What would you want to change about course books? What feedback would you want to give to publishers? Or what changes would you like to make to the way that course books are designed, packaged, etc.? Nick, what about you? 
Okay, you've caught me on the spot a bit here, and um, especially ironically, given what I've been saying for most of this, is that it's probably nearly like 10 years ago since I properly used an actual published course book in the way. Um, apart from briefly, I was teaching, at, um, I've got a friend called Kate, and she's a director of studies at a school in Cambridge, and I, I think I stood in, there was a teacher who was off ill or something, so I stood in for like two weeks, I think, and then, so I was using cutting edge then, but I, not not that much, to be honest, even then. And I think ironically, I mean, especially now, the things that I do are at the university because we write our own um, programs, we set our own assessments, um, all the material is bespoke. And because essentially it's for university students, it's kind of EAP and ESP, it is, it is very much based on their needs. And so it is essentially built around the task, you know, the, the, in longs terms, the, the kind of the task is the unit, not the text. So we're very much kind of focused on on that kind of thing. Um, all that said, I think if I did go back to teaching in a kind of, uh, you know, in the kind of schools that I've taught in before, like general English, like at the British Council or International House, where I was quite a few years ago now, um, I still don't think I'd have a problem with course books. And heavily ironically, because there are many, many things wrong, for, wrong with this. Um, but I actually think headway for all of the brickbats it gets, many of which are deserved, I actually think probably, or at least kind of the versions that I was using kind of in the mid-90s to kind of late 90s, early 2000s, I actually thought they were quite good. And what I liked about them is that the each unit, there would be a loose theme, but actually you would get like, for example, the reading wasn't that connected with the listening and sometimes they weren't connected at all. And other times you would get a kind of language slot, um, you know, just something like, for example, two or enough with just a short set of exercises and you could build a whole kind of lesson around that. It depends on the level, but many of them had a kind of, I forget what they called it, but something like conversational English or everyday English that presented kind of phrases and even those kind of things you could build an actual, what I thought quite a good lesson out of, out of that. Um, so I did like the way that it was, it was kind of a patchwork, almost like um, if, if, if people are familiar with Padlet, which is a kind of online app for putting it's like a kind of scrapbook where you can put different kinds of texts in it. Yeah, and I, and I, li and I like that because it, it gave me the freedom to kind of, when I had a group of learners, I could, you know, that old thing from right back from my CELTA course, you know, select, reject, adapt. Um, I thought Headway was perfect for that. I could pick the bits that I thought were useful. I could discard the bits that weren't. And I could adapt, like I think I was just mentioning about the two and not enough and the conversational kind of sections I could adapt those in my own way in ways that I thought would be useful for the learners in contrast though I think the and I do recognize this I think more recently at least I think there has been a move towards trying to really for course book writers to all or course book publishers to kind of teach the lesson on the teacher's behalf teach the lesson for them and it's it just really gets in the way and it's every single kind of element is locked together and it doesn't really allow you to logically move ahead and just do the listening say because the listening will quite often heavily depend on input that has come earlier in the in the lesson and I think I, I'm going to give the example of the first edition of face to face I think because when I first saw that I opened up the the book and it was it was so dense the material every single part of the page was was packed with information and I'm supposed to be fair to them, they, they were one of the first kind of course books, I think, to really take pronunciation really seriously and go to town on that. So I, I think they should be you know, commended for that or that first edition. I think it's changed quite a lot later now. 
but anyway, but yeah, the, it, but still that kind of thing where they're trying to direct you and push you through, push you through a class. I, I just, and any kind of course book that does that, I just, I just find it next to unusable. I, it's just, it just creates work. It's frustrating to work with and so on. I think having said all of that about the other two though, I think probably the, the one that I probably enjoyed teaching from most was one called Inside Out, which is Sue Kay and is it Vaughan Williams. Yeah, I think anyway, but definitely Sue Kay is one of them. I'm not sure why. I think it combined elements of the kind of headway, that palette kind of patchwork where you're able to pick and choose with some fairly well-chosen material, I guess, you know, in terms of well, just interest level. Like I remember one of them had, there was an upper intermediate book that had a, an extract from Bill Bryson, uh, like one of his travelogues that I remember students actually genuinely quite enjoying. For, I mean, just as a for instance. Can I just say I completely agree with Nick what he says. Um, again, any you know, generalisation sort of um, tends to ignore these nuances some course books are definitely uh, better or worse than others. They're not all uniformly the same at all. I personally can't say I'm, I, I think I was just uh, so blinded by rage that I never took a, anything like a headway. But I do remember tied out, for example, and thinking, well, this, this doesn't look so bad. Um, and I certainly think it's exactly for the reason that Nick says just how much is the teacher led by the nose and how much freedom uh, is there? How much does it make sense, in fact, to the students as well? With, uh, dipping in and out, doing it backwards always. Uh, that was my first suggestion to teachers, forced to use a course book. My thing we would do it backwards because then you'd start with the task. Um, or the, the more task-like activities and so on. And I'm sure, Nick, absolutely right, that the experienced teachers in a particular context have a thousand ways of messing about with uh, the order and, 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 and so on of a, of, a, of a course book. And of course there is that. And I, I think I agree with Nick. You know, if you say, well, how could you improve course books? I'd say the same thing, make them kind of flatter make them more resources make them more things that you can dip in and out of uh, you know a selection of uh, oral and, and and written texts and and uh, activity types and so on so I, I i absolutely agree with nick on that let me just ask matt then uh, first of all do you agree with that criticism of course books and secondly what would your sort of wish list be of changes to the kind of typical way course books are written and designed? Uh, it's really interesting actually to hear uh, both Nick's views and, and Jess' views because I think we broadly we agree actually. Um, yes, I think to, we do. To, to, if I kind of take your questions backwards, Neil, I think for me, I was just reflecting on, like listening to Nick there and reflecting on what I like in a course book and I think that thinking about the course books that I've found uh, helpful, are the, they're the ones that have the most natural language, the, most, the best texts, whether, you know, whether reading or listening texts. Because if you've got a text that, is, that sounds natural and it's clearly grounded in a particular communicative context, you can choose what you want to do with it. You don't have to focus on present perfect. You can focus on some other aspects of language. And I agree that there are some courses that, as Nick said, they try to teach the class for you. And I think that's, that's a response to, to other limitations, whether that's uh, 
teacher training limitation, you know, the, the, the type of teacher that's there in front of the classroom, uh, or whether it's a limitation to do with uh, testing and assessment, you know, in which case the fault lies with a, maybe with a Ministry of Education somewhere. So in some ways, I think we're, by focusing on course books, we're kind of singling out the wrong culprit, maybe, uh, because I do think that course books reflect the needs of, of teachers. And I think that's, that's why they are a commodity and that's why they can be sold because they, they serve a need. They, they fill a gap. They're convenient for people. And I think maybe we need to look at why they're convenient. Is it because teachers are not adequately trained? And is it because they don't have the, the language awareness to, to teach a task-based lesson? That's, that's kind of where this has brought me to. That's it for episode 8 and part 1 of this conversation about course books. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, please support us by subscribing, whether it's through iTunes, Apple or Spotify or whatever it is you get your podcasts. Subscribe or rate us and it really helps us get the podcast to more people. Hopefully there won't be too long to wait until the next part and until then... Cheerio.